Growing up, we've all heard the phrase from our parents over and over, the dreaded, you better eat everything on your plate, there are children starving in Africa. I never understood this statement. If I wasn't hungry but I still ate that plate full of food, how was that going to help a hungry child in Africa? And if I didn't, would that somehow negatively impact them? Now, I don't think I ever contemplated this too deeply as a kid. But last July, hungry children, and not only that, but unhealthy children, became my reality when I flew to a country in southern Africa called Zambia. I was part of a team that served the dual purpose of spreading God's word and setting up a temporary medical clinic in a rural village in Zambia. I heard about this trip through my assistant principal, Dr. Iodeli Okiowo. Dr. Okiowo, originally from Nigeria, started the annual trip through an organization he founded called Medical Mission of Hope to Zambia. He's a certified dentist in Zambia and returns there every year with his wife and a team of medical professionals to set up a healthcare clinic in the village of Farah. I don't know what it was about this particular trip. I just felt drawn to the idea of going to a place that needs so much more help than I felt that I could give here. I set up a fundraising website and I asked for donations of friends, of family, my parents' co-workers, people from church, even of strangers. I was absolutely overwhelmed by the response and the generous support from all of these people. And then the day came that I got on a plane with the eight other people on my team and we set off for Zambia. We stayed with a host family in the city of Lusaka, the capital, and the day after we arrived, we left for Farah. The day that we left for Farah, my team and I attended a church service in the city. Like I mentioned before, this was also part mission trip. And the spirituality of our team's purpose in Zambia was a key component of how my team bonded. Now, this wasn't really something that dawned on me until we actually got to this church service, but every single person on my team, except for myself, was an actively practicing Christian. Many of them were even from the same church. During the service, it seemed as if each person in the congregation was in their own world, worshiping their own God for the longest church service I'd ever been to. <laughs> It was filled with extreme emotion, people falling to their knees in tears, dancing, crying out prayers, disclaiming their sins, and I felt as if I was intruding upon an incredibly personal and private spiritual ordeal. I'll admit I felt more out of place than I have in my entire life. They addressed God as if he stood in the room with us, a tangible being whose hand guided every move of their bodies, every word they spoke, responsible for every hill and valley they encountered in life. I did not have a God like this that I could pray to or worship in that way. Having grown up a lifelong Unitarian Universalist, I knew that I led my life differently and believed different things than many Christians do. And, admittedly, coming into this trip, I had my own judgment against the religion that made it even more difficult for me to feel okay with how differently they worshipped, how differently they preached, the different things they believed in. I was ill-prepared for the intensity of the service, and, if I'm being quite honest, I left it feeling somewhat uncomfortable and somewhat alone among my team members. Despite this, I was so excited to get to the village. It is the most beautiful place that I have ever visited. It's on a unique spot, the place where the Luangwa and the Zambezi rivers meet. It's in a large valley surrounded by beautiful mountains, and the people there cohabitate with the land in a way that I have never seen before. Farah is the biggest village in its district, which is kind of the equivalent of a county for us, and had its own market and school. 
It's a very impoverished area where most people live in little one-room stick houses with tin roofs or a brick hut of some sort. Some people have gardens and work the land for food. Others have local jobs, and others don't have any means of supporting themselves. The children who can go to school are the ones who can afford to pay for the school uniforms and the books. Those who cannot are the ones that we spent the most time with because they played outside the church all day long where we set up our clinic. They were all mostly barefoot with soiled clothes and usually very dirty, but perfectly happy. It was not uncommon to see a six- or seven-year-old child carrying their younger brother or sister on their back and taking care of them throughout the day. At first when I saw this, I remember the first thing that crossed through my mind was a memory of my aunt when she first brought her two brand-new twin baby girls home from the hospital. I was about 10 years old, and they were so cute, and I wanted so badly to pick them up and carry them around the house and play with them. But I remember my aunt telling me, little people don't carry little people. (laughs) And yet here I was, seeing before my eyes something that was not only the norm there, but also sometimes a necessity. We set up our clinic in a big stone building in the village that is used as one of their churches, There were 11 of us total on the team, including the two pastors of the church who helped us during the week as translators. We provided several different services to the villagers who came in as patients. We had a dental side where Dr. Okiowo extracted teeth, and Christy, our dental hygienist, cleaned the patient's teeth. On the other side, Lori, our physician's assistant, and Betha, our nurse, saw patients for every other symptom they might be having that wasn't their teeth. Thankfully, we had basic medications to give to the patients, such as amoxicillin, ibuprofen, Tylenol, and a few others. The most common ailments we saw in the kids were colds, scabies, ringworm, coughs, or any sort of open wound. They'd also come in to get their teeth cleaned, and our dental hygienist would teach them how to brush their teeth, and then send them off with a toothbrush and toothpaste. Many of the kids had never used a toothbrush before. And when she would hand them a mirror to see their newly cleaned teeth, Many were somewhat taken aback at seeing the reflection because they had hardly ever seen themselves in a mirror before. In the adults, it was a little different. They would come in with sore legs, sore backs, sore feet, headaches, coughs, STDs or abscesses or growths on their bodies that they wanted looked at, mostly symptoms that were indicative of their labor-intensive lifestyles. HIV was also prevalent. The average life expectancy in that particular area of Zambia is about 40 years old. I'll admit that seeing all this sickness was somewhat overwhelming. Obviously, my standards of care in the U.S. are quite different. When I have a cold, I go to the doctor's office. When I'm coughing, I get some cough drops from the Wegmans. When I'm running a fever, I stay home from school, and my dad brings me ginger ale. It's incredible to think that such differences in lifestyle are separated only because we happen to be born on different parts of this earth. My job was at the front of the clinic, signing in patients and taking their name, age, date of birth, and I wrote down their chief complaints before I sent them to be looked at by either the dental or the medical side. Many spoke some English, but most spoke a local language called Nianja, which I actually ended up learning quite a bit of in order to communicate with them. Frequently throughout our time in Pharaoh, we had lines out the door of patients who were waiting to be seen. These were people who had walked very long distances and often with several children in order to be looked at. Sometimes we had to turn people away at the end of the day who had been waiting for hours because we just could not work without daylight. They were never outwardly angry with us. They would just sigh and leave and come back the next day to do it again. 
They have very little access to any sort of reliable healthcare clinic or facility within a 300-mile radius of where they are. The closest hospital is in Lusaka, and it's very expensive for them to get there and to pay for their care. Even if they can't afford a hospital, the, san the sanitation practices will make you nauseous. The same gloves are used from patient to patient, or no gloves are used at all, and often needles are reused without a second thought. These cringeworthy facts are a result of lack of medical equipment and disease awareness that we are fortunate enough to have in developed countries such as the U.S. Every morning before clinic, the whole team got up and we met for what, what we called our team devotional. I loved these. We'd sit around outside and eat breakfast together and touch base with each other and watch the sun come up over the river. And Ellen, our other nurse, would lead a prayer from the Bible for a discussion. Each morning, my teammates discussed verses in the Bible about how our purpose in Zambia was to humbly serve the people in God's name, give God all the glory, and better understand what God wanted us to do with our lives. And each morning, my teammates asked God to grant us the compassion, the patience, and the strength to be able to serve the people of Farah to the absolute best of our abilities. At first... Listening to these requests of someone or something that I personally did not believe was responsible for our compassion, patience, and strength, I was slightly uncomfortable with the morning meetings, and I added very little to the discussion and the prayers. The way they spoke to God, he could have been sitting right there in our morning prayer circles. It was something that I was not used to. However, as the days went on, I noticed that my teammates delivered their care and worked with the patients with such love and with such humility that I realized I was seeing a different side of Christianity, one that perhaps I had not given a fair shot. The fact that my teammates and I believed that our strength was coming from different places was irrelevant. The care itself was what was important. There were definitely a few patients that left an impact on me and whom I'll never forget. Often during clinic, young girls would come in frequently the same age as me, who came in with brand new babies on their backs and toddlers on their hips. One girl in particular came in with a baby on her back and her chief complaint was of enlarged breasts. I took her vitals and I sent her off to triage. I had to go back there about an hour later to grab a different BP cuff. She was just sitting down behind the privacy screen to be seen by our PA, Lori. She removed her shirt and a large portion of her chest was taken over by a large swollen growth. Later, I asked Lori what she thought about this particular girl, and she told me she thought it was most likely a, mal a malignant growth. She told me she thought this because it wasn't painful to the touch and it wasn't red or inflamed, which means it probably was not just an infection. There was absolutely nothing we could give to this girl, who's barely as old as I am and is probably suffering from a very aggressive form of breast cancer with no way to treat it and a child to care for. I had a lot of trouble with this one probably because she was so close in age, and I'm not accustomed to so few options, or in this case, none at all. The other thing that I struggled with was that, like I previously mentioned, we sometimes had to turn people away at the end of the day because we could not work without daylight. On our last day in clinic, a middle-aged man came in at the end of the day to get some teeth extracted. I had been told not to take any new patients because we were already running so behind, but this man was very persistent. When he smiled at me, I saw the black stains and the holes in his teeth. I remember I kept saying I was sorry, but there was already so long a line that we could not see him, even though it was our last day in the village. 
He looked me right in the eye and he asked me, what am I supposed to do? Where can I go? And all I could tell him was, I don't know. He looked me right in the eye and said again, where can I go? And I, I didn't have anything to tell him. I think about that man and that girl every day. I often look back on those moments and I say to myself, I should have said something else. I should have said something more helpful, something more comforting. But what else could I have said? There truly was no place for them to go. Nothing I could have said would have made them better, made them healthy, made them pain-free. Part of the overwhelming factor of seeing all of these people, children and adults alike, who needed care was that there is nothing you can do for them long term. We could give them vitamins that lasted 10 days. We could give them a few doses of amoxicillin or ibuprofen. But ultimately, when you are standing there looking at a child who you know who has eaten close to nothing that day or who has never learned to brush their teeth, who has a bad case of ringworm, the most difficult part is coming to terms with the fact that in that moment there is nothing you can do. So we gave the the kids gumballs and bubbles, and we sang songs with them, and we smiled, and we played with them, and we gave them basketballs and as many donated clothes and shoes from people at home as we could fit into our suitcases. And they smiled back at us, and they sang with us, and they tripped over each other to get to the gumballs and the bubbles. But I'll admit that that's something I definitely struggled with while I was in Farah, and something that I've struggled with even after coming home. During the middle of the week, we visited the school in the village as well. We'd brought hundreds of pencils and erasers and a few other basic school supplies to give to the students. The principal, a harsh, towering, and somewhat intimidating lady, met us at the school and brought us around to each classroom so that we could distribute the supplies. What struck me the most as we handed these out was that each and every student that we handed a pencil to, which was close to a thousand, reached out their hands as if cupping them to receive water. And each and every one, after being handed a pencil, said, Zacomo, thank you. There are many factors that could keep a child from learning in that village that you and I might take for granted. We saw many patients who were students who needed glasses, just regular reading glasses or prescription glasses that you and I would get from the Costco or the Walgreens. In Farah, if a student has trouble reading the board because they need glasses and they sit at the back of the classroom, they won't be learning that day. Every student takes a standardized test at the end of the eighth grade, and those who don't pass it are essentially dropped out of school and forced to either find a job, get married, or both. This is mainly because they just don't have the teachers or the room to teach that many students in higher grades. If a family has enough money, the ultimate goal is to send your child to boarding school, which is many miles away but has the best education available. They rank the students based on their grades to create competition, and they use it as a motivational tool. While going around to each classroom, the principal would ask the teachers to call up the number one and the number two students in the class. She would look at these two highest-ranking students and say to them, Good job. Keep working as hard as you can, and do not, by any means necessary, let anybody take your spots. Then she would turn around, and she would look at the rest of the class, and she would say, how could you let them beat you? They are better than you. You are not trying hard enough. Do whatever it takes to take their spots. 
and she repeated this in every classroom that we visited. As a privileged middle-class girl from Loudoun County, Virginia, whose only real problem with her education is the pretty awful school lunch food and the occasional frustrating teacher, I was revolted. But what I realized was that this extreme sense of competition not only encouraged but nearly forced kids to learn and to succeed and to make something of themselves if they are fortunate enough to have the materials to do so. Who was I to judge that? My time in Zambia opened my eyes to a whole new reality, a reality without the everyday conveniences we so easily take for granted and with more disease and more hunger than should exist in the 21st century. But this is also a place filled with people who have an unwavering gratitude for their loved ones, their food, their beautiful land, all that they do have and all that they work for. Showed me that happiness has less to do with what you deserve and more to do with how you handle what you're given. Since returning home, I think about my trip to Zambia every day, and I'm still overwhelmingly grateful for the opportunity I was given to participate. Usually when I think about Zambia, it's when I'm walking through the grocery store, and I realize just the incredible amounts of food that I'm surrounded by. Or when I'm in school, and a teacher has just helped me with something that I was having trouble with. Or when I'm sitting in my room doing homework, and just notice the incredible amount of things that I have, and that's all that they are, is just things. The trip as a whole has reminded me to always be aware of the countless things I have to be grateful for, and most importantly, that even the smallest of helping hands can, make, can help make the world a better place. <laughs>